I don't understand exactly what went wrong. Perhaps your camera is not working. Welcome. This week's Parsha, Parsha Shalach. Shalach Lecho Anoshim. This week is Shabbos Mevorchim Chedesh Tammuz. The Shabbos which we bless the new upcoming month of Tammuz. Tuesday and Wednesday, so next Wednesday we will elaborate both on Rishchidish Tammuz and of course the events of Yidbezid Gimel Tammuz, which will have its own Fabrengen, and we'll elaborate on the next and the following Shabbos, which will be Gimel Tammuz. It's infamous for that that is almost say horrific moment in Jewish history. Where the decree is put down on the Jewish nation that they are to wander in the desert for forty years. how they were going to go about it, what exactly would happen. How they would manage. How would they sustain? How would they? How would the Jews sustain themselves? Etc. All these other problems that would come about now. Forty years, they would have to find out. Although the parish itself, shalach lecho which is in essence a name that pretty much tells the story where Moshe is told to send off the Jewish spies. The parsha itself has three mitzvahs. One mitzvah is a mitzvah for the women, which is the hafrish chala, every doe that a woman makes, and there has to be a certain amount, actually, not if the dough is made out of two ounces or five ounces, would it be sufficient? Would have to be, there's, of course, differences of opinions as to how big the dough has to be, in order that one should be able to make a bracha to take off challah. This piece of challah was then given to the kohen, to the priest, 
A second mitzvah, a positive commandment in this parsha, is the mitzvah of tzitzis. A Jew that has a garment with four corners needs to put from the same material tzitzis on the corners. And thirdly, a negative prohibition not to stray after your thoughts of the heart and the sight of the eyes. How odd and how awkward. If a person is doing 612 commandments, the 613th being, do not stray, do not stray after your hearts and after your eyes. Big deal. Big deal. Also, we have to understand, again, in the last portion of the Torah, as we just mentioned, is the tzitzis, the mitzvah of tzitzis, putting on the four-cornered garment tzitzis, But tzitzis, unlike most any other mitzvah, has a clause to it, an addition to it. Why should you do this? The mantizkru vasisim is called mitzvah So that you should remember and perform all my commandments. How odd. What does this mitzvah of tzitzis have such a tremendous significance that from this you will remember all the mitzvahs of God? Also, prior to this, The Torah tells us of a very, very awkward happening. No more, no less. In chapter 15, and the Pasuk 32, The story of the Mekoshesh Eitzim. The Mekoshesh Eitzim gathered wood on Shabbos. And because he gathered wood on Shabbos, he thereby desecrated the Shabbos and thereby was punishable by. And we don't know, punishable by. The terror al is not telling us just yet. 
but definitely, definitely punishable by, punishable by something. And ironically, immediately prior to the story of the Mekreshish Eitzim, of the one that is desecrating the Shabbos, the Torah talks also about idol worship. So, of course, the underlying connection is baffling. Idol worship with the wood gatherer and the whole picture, the sin of the spies. When the Torah tells that the speech is not the main, thought is not the main behavior that one should do, but rather Hamaisa, one must act, one must do. And the Gemara tells us in Baba Basra, the Maisa, the story of the Mekreshish was immediately after the story of the Meraglim, of the spies. And the Medrash says they both were God-fearing and intended to do this for God's name. Since, said the Jews, they would no longer be going into Israel, to the Holy Land and the decree was upon them that they will not enter they felt they were no longer obligated to do any mitzvahs and the first reaction to that is the Mekoshesh Eitzim A person does such a horrific act. The second Shabbos after the receiving of the Torah. The Jews received the Torah. And upon receipt of the Torah, they immediately kept Shabbos because that was the commandment. On the very second Shabbos, our Makoshish Eitzim comes about. The man is gathering the wood. What was that? <coughs> On the second Shabbos, already the man was Machal Shabbos, desecrating the Shabbos. What was he thinking? And how is it? that he thought, or that everyone thought, that now that they were not going into Eretz Yisrael, into the Holy Land, now they no longer have to keep any mitzvahs. 
The reason that the Miraglim, the spies, did not want to enter into Israel was almost logical. It was almost logical. The spies said, we are now in the desert. We live on spirituality. The man, whatever else God gives us to make us live. We are sustained by spirituality. We bask in spirituality in the clouds. We have no physical responsibility. There's no mortgage, there's no rent. There's no electric, there's no gas, there's no telephone, there's no internet. (laughs) We don't know there was no internet. But there was nothing else. How could the world exist without internet? Come on, let's get real. There must have been internet. There's nothing. And in this world of nothingness, except for them and God, they had no reason to want to leave this. Then they are told they're going into the Holy Land of Israel. And listen to what you're going to have. When you enter this Holy Land, you will be able to work on the fields. You'll be able to go out there and toil. Because in six days of work, six days a week, you'll do physical labor. On the seventh, you will rest. You want to eat? You want to eat? You have to plant. You'll have to sow. You'll have to reap. Not Nothing for free anymore. Said these wonderful spies, these people, Vos benich me Am I crazy here? I don't want to do that. I don't want to lose out on the spirituality. I want to keep my connection with God and not have to do anything else except for sit and study there. Why would I want to deprive myself? So in essence, their intentions were not so bad. Their intentions were not so improper. Their intentions were pure, were spiritual. They wanted to be able to sit in their interior all day and not have to involve themselves in physical labor. They have a decree. And the decree is announced. Nobody is going into the land. No one's entering the Holy Land. What does that mean? Translation, according to the Yiddish Cup. I don't have to do any of those mitzvahs. All the mitzvahs are now over. Right now in the Midbar, in the desert, we were given Teda. We were given to study Teda. We were given to bask in Teda and bask in spirituality. 
These mitzvahs, these physical mitzvahs, were not given to us, and they await us in Israel. But now that we're told we're not entering Israel, we no longer have these obligations. So the Jews felt perhaps they're exonerated from doing mitzvahs. You're a passenger. Yeah, you're a passenger. Yeah. Only your right arm, because it's out the right window. The driver has the left hand. Yeah, most of the time I was a passenger. <laughs> most of the time I was driving. Comes the Makaisha Shaitzim. Comes the wood gatherer. And he gives a wake up call. And again, this is intention for God. He is willing to put his life on the line. Yes, he's desecrating Shabbos. Yes, he knows he's going to have to answer to that. But yes, he knows that he has to teach a lesson to the entire Jewish nation. Shabbos is coming. And Shabbos is holy. And although we are not going into the Holy Land, we are obligated in mitzvahs. This is therefore the Makesha Shaitsan. Pure intent. And in essence, perhaps we could even say, this is why the Teda doesn't give his name. The Teda doesn't tell us who he actually was. Who? The one that gathered the wood. What the guy with the Kibshalan? Hmm? The guy with the Kibshalan? Right. Mm-hmm. And that is therefore why this comes together with the story of the Miraglum. Let us return a moment to revisit the mitzvah we spoke about before, the last mitzvah of this week's Pasha, the mitzvah of Tzitzis. You will see your tzitzis who's chartem. It's called mitzvah is Hashem. You'll remember all the mitzvahs of the Eibushter. Why? If I see some strings, eight strings, will I remember Taylor? Will I remember all my mitzvahs? In the world of Torah, we've spoken many times, the esoterical part of Torah is the wonderful world of Gematria. Gematria gives us the numerical value of letters. And the letters of the Alabes, each letter has a value. Tzitzis is written Tzadik Yud, Tzadik Yud Saf. The tzaddik is 90, the yud is 10, and the saf is 400. So 90 plus 10 is 100, 90 plus 10 is 200, and 400 is 600. 
We have eight strings on our scissors. And each corner has eight strings and five knots. So eight strings and five knots is 613. And therefore the person that wears the tzitzis and sees his tzitzis will always be reminded of all the mitzvahs in the Torah. He doesn't exactly see them right now. <laughs> you know, the vision of a tzaddik, the vision that a tzaddik has from one end of the world to the other. When we spoke last week, we told a story that was so, so different about the girl in Brazil they wanted to marry a non-Jew. And when the Rebbe said, I'm not sleeping because of her. I'll tell you a similar story, but much more far, almost far-fetched. And this takes us to Australia. In Australia, was this lovely little girl in a place called Belgrade, Australia. And I must tell you, since I'm not well-versed in geography, and Australia is not my cup of tea, although my son spent a year there. Yes, my son Ezra. God bless him. Living here in Crown Heights now with two children. My wife. Bless her. In Belgrade, Australia, there was a non-Jewish Protestant family. Very, very, very wealthy. And they had a little girl. This little girl was born with a silver spoon in her mouth, shall we say. She lacked nothing. She lacked everything she wanted she had. She said boo and everybody went running. She said jump and everybody asked how high. There was money and there was clothing and there was fun and there was whatever she needed. And her life came to a very, very abrupt shortstop. From one day's visit to the library. She came to the library Obviously not the Brooklyn Public Library, because I don't think they have a branch in Australia, in Belgrade. And she found a big green book, documentary book. And on the cover of the book were the most despicable looking, borderline creatures, human beings. They were emaciated, they were without hair. They, they were like walking skeletons. It almost looked like a sci-fi. And upon closer examination, she saw they're actual regular human beings. 
And she started flicking through the pages and saw one page after the other the most horrific, nightmarish pictures. And as she read, she read about a nation called the Jews. And this Jewish nation was in Poland, in Hungary, and in Lithuania. And wherever they were, in all these places, they were gathered. And six million Jews were killed. And these were exterminated with this gas, and these were exterminated with this, and these were killed this way. And the book elaborates throughout how in each and every different place they managed to exterminate Jews. She had only one question. Why? Why would they kill six million Jews? What's a Jew? And it became very, very, very disturbing to her. And it was so disturbing she could not come to her senses. She came home and she mentioned to her mother, she saw this book in the library, and her mother said, Tip-tip-poo-poo, change the subject and move on in life. Easier said than done. These pictures, as are many other such pictures that people see and view at different times and places, were ingrained in her in her mind. They were totally ingrained to such an extent she could not function. Her smile was gone. Her happiness had left her. What happened in between those years, 1939 and 1945, in this far-off place called Europe, that six million people, people, human beings, called Jews, were exterminated. Not she knew what a Jew is, Not that anything bothered her per se for the Jewish nation. But six million of them were exterminated. On what basis? What could they have possibly done? And she tried to find her answer. She looked and she started doing research to no avail. One day, she finds a newspaper in Australia, Belgrade, Australia. And in Belgrade, Australia's newspaper, there was an article about a very, very holy man in Brooklyn, New York. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And it basically spoke of his greatness and how he was so special and she said if he is let me find out and she took the address down 770 to Parkway Brooklyn, New York 11213 United States of America and she sat down this young lady, this young girl and wrote a letter to the Rebbe and said I understand you're a leader of the Jewish nation. I don't know what a Jewish nation is. 
But I don't understand. I don't understand what happened here with this Holocaust. What happened to these six million Jews? The Rebbe, three weeks later, sent her a response. And the Rebbe said that not far from you in Melbourne, Australia, is a Rabbi Chaim Gutnik. I want you to pay him a visit, and he will answer your questions. And so she looked up the name. It was not a problem finding him. She didn't have to Google it. You could look it up then in a thing that was called a foam book. It was actually made out of paper with ink on it. And she called over Gutnik, made an appointment, and came to see him. She comes to Rabbi Gutnik and she spent several long hours with Rabbi Gutnik and she still was a little bit bewildered. But interestingly, one of Rabbi Gutnik's approaches and his questions that was most concerning was, why does this bother you? Who are you? Are you Jewish? Do you have Jewish blood? Jewish relations? Why are you so interested in what's going on here? And lo and behold, as many times as he inquired and as much as he dug, the girl said, absolutely not. I am a very religious Protestant our family pure at that point they bid bade farewell farewell one another and they parted ways and this was almost forgotten until a letter arrived to Rabbi Chaim Gutnik from the Lubavitch Rebbe in Brooklyn, New York and the Rebbe asks Rabbi Gutnik, how is the Jewish girl from Belgrade? <laughs> Needless to say, Rabbi Gutnik was blown out of the water. He immediately went through his paperwork, found her address, got in the car, and drove out to find her. And as he arrived at the house, she was not home, her parents were there, and he was being again, he started again his inquiry and tried to find and to dig and to, but there was nothing happening we are not Jewish it made no sense if the Rebbe asked how is that Jewish girl the Rebbe in Brooklyn, New York knew that there was a Jewish girl in Belgrade, Australia who didn't have any idea that she was Jewish and Rabbi Gutnik left, quite despondent. For if no other reason, how is he going to answer the Rebbe? 
few weeks later, though, Rabbi Gutnik receives a phone call. The girl has fallen into a coma. She's gone to a deep depression, apparently over this Holocaust issue, and has fallen into a coma. They asked if he would come see her. But Gutnik got into his car, drove back out to Belgrade. I have no idea what that distance is, by the way. And as he arrives in Belgrade, he comes to the hospital. Seriously. And the parents are sitting there crying their eyes out. I never had this light on. Shh. And they're discussing and they're talking. Husband was very happy to see him. And finally, the mother says to Rabbi Gutnik, Can I have a private moment with you? And he said, Sure. Rabbi Gutnik steps outside. And the mother says to him, I lied to you. I am Jewish. My mother was Jewish. But in my teenage life, I gave it up. I ran away from everything. And I converted Rabbi Gutnik told her, this is what your daughter needs to save her life. She needs to hear from you that she's Jewish. She said, but my husband, we love each other, and, and, and he knows nothing of this, and he'd be devastated to hear. So he says, go back in, tell your husband to talk, come out and talk to me. And while you're alone with her, you tell her the news. And lo and behold, the husband came right out. Rabbi Gutnik came to him entertained, and the mother told her comatose daughter the family secret that she was indeed Jewish. And that must be why the Holocaust bothered her so much. A short while later, after the conversation between Rabbi Gutnik and the husband finished, they entered the room and found the daughter sitting up in bed, talking, and asking to have all her tubes and machines and monitors removed. And she found a new lease in life, knowing that she was now a Jewish girl. So we see, therefore, the concept of Teda and Mitzvahs have such potency, are so powerful, that they take a Jewish person and they bring them back to life, literally. We said before, one of the mitzvahs in this week's parasha, Reishis HaRiseiseichem Chala Tarimu Teruma One must take Teruma in the Reishis HaRiseiseichem in the beginning of your doze. Chala also has numerical values to each letter. Ches is 8, Lamed is 30, 
and hay is five. The life cycle of the human being, of the male, even more so, of the firstborn male. Ches is eight, which is the eight days of the bris. Hold on. We caused havoc. Something failed, something worked. Wait a minute, we bounced everybody over here. Oh, this is not right. I gotta, I gotta call you back because we, we, we eliminated everybody. Oh, now I don't have to. Hold on. Let me get you back on the picture here. What, what'd you do? I need this enlarged. Hold on. Okay, there you are. Bigger than life and scarier than ever. Okay, let's add the other people back. The other people that fell out. Hold on. Hold on. Why is this not allowing this? It's not allowing me again to have. I have to. Someone has to do the homework during the week here and figure out how we get this back so that everybody can be on video together. It's not. We had it in the beginning, we used to have it. Group video. Used to have it. Stop doing it. No, they have it. Um, there's no one to call in this company either. I know. The Chala here is being mentioned right before Aved Zara. Again. Medish Rabba tells us, Vayikri Rabba tells us, Leimelech HaTatayu Shekola Mekayi Mitzvah Chala Whoever keeps the mitzvah of challah is as if he nullifies the sin of idol worship. What does one have to do with the other? The truth is, when a person goes to his field, and puts his seeds in the ground, and plants it, and sows, sows it, and, pours, and waters it. The more he does, and the better he f- tends to the field, like my wonderful lawn in the front of my house, the few blades of grass that I have, the more I water it, and the more I nurture it, etc., and the seeds we put on again, the nicer it comes up. It gets to a point almost where if I don't do it, nothing happens and the grass dies. But if I do do it, it becomes such a beautiful, wonderful, splendid looking lawn uh, in Brooklyn. Question is, can I actually say, Chas v'shalom keichi ve'etzim yadi asal es that my hands 
the toil of my hands did this? Heaven forbid. God forbid you can ever say that. But when we look at it, that's our first reaction, that's our first thought. But the person that plows his field and plants his field and grows his wheat ultimately knows that it's not him. It's God Himself. As the Pasik says, He's the one that gives to you the strength to do this. And we know that that through the blessing of God does one get wealthy. And therefore the planting is not his strength, his doing. It brings him parnasa perhaps, yes. But ultimately he looks at it and he says, I know it's not me. And therefore I believe in the one that creates life. That he will give parnasa to those who plant. This therefore is the basis of the mitzvah of challah. The person understands and recognizes that it's not his work that did this. It's all a blessing from Hashem. And therefore the wheat and the dough, all this is connected only to God. So he gives what's called Reishas Arisaysechem Turuma Lashem. From the first things already he's giving Turuma, separation for God. Because ultimately this whole dough belongs to God. So the Truma, the Chala, causes him to recognize the greatness of God and recognizing to the omnipresence of God and that nothing can be done without God. And therefore, automatically, he's denying any kind of idol worship. Because he turns to the idol worship and says, there's no idols, there's no anything, there's only God Himself. Yes, join the club. Tired is his status. Huh? I work! See, I do here. Exaggerate. Yeah. What did the Miraglim actually sing? Shlach lecha anoshim. Shlach. It doesn't say, it's very interesting, I saw this week in something that I mentioned it to a few people. Rashi tells us, Shlach lecha anoshim, Shlach lecha ledaitecha. Your thought. It's your opinion. So in other words, we think lecha, the word lecha should mean to your das, to your opinion. Mm-hmm. He says, no, shalach. The concept of sending, im I'm not commanding you to do it. Im if you want, send it. So the shalach is the daitacha. The fact that he was sending was, in his, was his thought. The Rambam asks, Ramban, excuse me, what did the Miraglim do so wrong? Moshe sent them. 
<laughs> if Moshe Rabbeinu comes to you and tells you to do something, <laughs> how could you go wrong? How is it possible? Moshe said, And you should see the land. What is the land? And the people that are there, etc. What is their virtues? They should have come back and told him what he asked. What was their sin? They said, It's a much stronger nation than us. Did you want us to lie? You didn't want us to lie, you want us to tell the truth. <coughs> the truth is, they're a very powerful nation, we can't conquer them. Ironically, this Pasha of Shalach comes right after the story of Miriam Hanavia. <coughs> Miriam, the sister of Moshe, also spoke wrong. And Rashi asks, why are these two together? Because fools, you just saw by talking not right things, by talking about somebody, talking Allah Shnara, Miriam and Aviyah were struck with, with leprosy. So where do you come off now? Rashi doesn't just say, where do you come off? Rashi uses the Lashen, Urishoyim Alalu, Rov Leilachumusr. And these evil, wicked people saw what happened and didn't take the lesson. This is what Rashi is answering in essence his question. Miriam did not say a lie. What Miriam spoke about Moshe was actually true. And she didn't mean to embarrass Moshe. She loved Moshe, it was her brother. What was she punished for? Al iskei dibo The actual words that she said about Moshe. She didn't deviate from anything that Moshe was actually doing. However, there's a Yiddish expression, not everything on the lung has to be on the tongue. And although it might be true, you don't have to say it. And especially if there's no tayelas. Especially if there's nothing to accomplish by it. To go and just talk plain Lashon Hara. To spread a rumor or to spread a story about something that someone did or does. If it has nothing to do with today or the last year, or 10 years, or 15 years, it's Lashon Hara that a person is punishable by. Who's this? Asking the hang on away. He called his number. Moshe Rabbeinu, therefore, was not totally off what Miriam said. But as a sister, she should have gone to him and said it straight to him quietly. You discuss it with the person. 
you discuss it with the one that you think did the sin. And what you accomplish, you accomplish. You don't go out and tell everybody the story. It's none of your business. And those who do, you have to be punished. And the punishment can get very severe. And this too was the sin of the Miraglim. That although they knew it would be hard to conquer the land, they should have said it very short. Answer Moshe's questions. What was their sin that they elaborated? That they embellished? They told more than they had to? And this thereby caused this whole uprising. And they said even more so, Let's get concentrating and get home. Home back to Egypt. Basic tells us Uri Isam Aisam Baitsitis. We find the word Uri Isam two other times in the Tata. The first time is by Pare. He tells the midwives Uri Isam Al Noim see on how they are giving birth. The second time he says, the Taylor tells us, in the beginning of Shalach, where he tells the Murisa and Mesoretz, you should see the land. And now here by Tzitzis, Murisa and Oisai. We're learning Pirkei and this week is actually Perek Shlishi again. And Perek Shlishi starts, Akavya Bemalal Leimer, Akavya the son of Mahalal says, To look at three things in Athabodah de Aveda, you will not come to sin. Da, you should know me, I am Bosa from where you come. Ulon Atahilech to where you are going to go. Before whom will you have to give reckoning? These are the three Uriisims, the three times the Tera says, and you should look. The child, the midwife, to know from where you come. To see the land, where you're going to go in the ground after 120 years. But ultimately, you should know for whom will you have to give reckoning? You will see him. Who is the him? God. The Almighty God Himself. Where you have to stand and you'll have to give reckoning. We see that Vayas Kolev when the Miraglim started the uprising. All the Miraglim were talking against the Holy Land except for your Kolev and Yeshua. Kolev spoke up 
And Yeshua did not say a word. Why? What was Yeshua so quiet about? <laughs> Yeshua knew Elder Amedad was just saying Nevoah. What was their Nevoah? What was their prophecy? Meisha Meis, Yeshua Machnes. Meisha is going to die, and Yeshua is going to take the Jews into Israel. If Yeshua would stand up to propagate entering Israel, would stand up and take a stance and say, No, Israel is a beautiful land, and we have to fight to go into the land, everybody would immediately say, Aha, Yeshua. You want to kill Meisha already and take the Jewish nation into the land. So Yeshua knew the nation well. And he stood down. And he stood down and let Kaliv do the talking. But these are great people. Why do they sin? The sin again, as we said before, was a very simple issue. It was an issue of that they wanted to stay spiritual. They did not want to go into the land. They did not feel that this would be beneficial for their spirituality. Do you know it says that they came back and they said how small they looked in the eyes of the people? The famous story of a chassid that had an inn. And he sold vodka like any other person sold in the inn. And one day, another person opened an inn across the street and sold vodka as well. How painful could that be? Immediately he ran to the Babish to tell the Rebbe the story. And the Rebbe told him, I want you to set up two barrels of vodka. One barrel sell more expensive and one cheaper. And everybody should know you have two grades of vodka. The better and the less. But the Rebbe I don't have. He says, it doesn't matter. Just sell this barrel for more money and this barrel for less money. Word got out that he had two different qualities of vodka. And the people came running to him. And they only wanted the more expensive vodka. <laughs> The cheaper vodka wasn't good enough for them anymore. Pasuk ironically tells us here that they grabbed this fellow, the Mekeshish ate him again, we'll go back to him. And they placed him in custody. We are not allowed, according to Halacha Hilkah Shabbos, we're not allowed to pass judgment on a Shabbos. If one cannot pass judgment on Shabbos, how did they arrest this man and put him in prison on Shabbos? So let us look at the wording here. And they put him in custody. They knew that the entire nation now was up in arms. A Jew desecrated the second Shabbos that the Jews are keeping. There's a reason why he did it, you know? Yes, but we also know 
that if the entire Jewish nation keeps two Shabbatsim in a row, there's a message that says that Mashiach will come. And his desecration of Shabbos just ruined it. So the entire nation was up in arms against him. Since nobody knew what to do with him, they took him into custody and they protected him from the rest of the nation. Until Until Hashem tells Mesha the man has to be put to death. And at that point, and very interesting how it says, the entire nation took him out to the Chutzlamachna, and they all stoned him, and he died. How? That in itself is something ironic. Why is it telling us Kashativa Hashem is Mesha and not just Kashativa Hashem? Like God commanded, what is the addition to the word Esmesha? It is a very hard thing for a ruler, for a leader, to condemn a Jew, condemn someone in his tribe. And here, the only way Moshe was able to say, to do this, was because God gave him a direct commandment to do so. We hear from here, we see from here, in order to speak bad about a Jew, in order to punish a Jew, it has to be a direct commandment from God. We, the human beings, are not people, do not have the power empowered within us to punish a Jew, to castigate a Jew, to blaspheme a Jew, unless God Himself tells you to do so. So anyone that's speaking Lashon Hara and says, I'm doing this, the shame Shamayim in the name of heaven, he's in essence telling you God talks to me at night, or by day, or whenever it might be. He has visions and God talks to him. God bless him, and they should have they should have a good and foolish lemma. But in the meantime, we should be We should be sent out of this gollus, and we should go to this Shabbos from the Shabbos of Shalach to see what Kerach really stood for, as we will speak next week. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.